Well, good morning to you all. I have the, the great joy and privilege of opening up the Word of God for us this morning. And you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where we are going to be looking at a passage that will help us all to examine what kind of member am I in the body of Christ? What kind of member am I? Now notice the question isn't, am I a member or or are you a member of the body of Christ? If you're a Christian, you are. You are a member of the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ, which consists of all believers. And yet in the New Testament, each local church is also referred to as the body of Christ. So there is one body, but there are many localized expressions of that one body. And again, every genuine Christian is a member of the body of Christ, but when we evaluate what kind of member we are, we look to the local expression, the local church. Now, admittedly, when we ask this question, what kind of member am I, that's pretty broad. It's a pretty broad question. We've got to narrow that down and get specific here. So let's ask it another way. When it comes to spiritual gifts, in my attitude and my actions, what kind of member? Am I? And I would imagine there are potentially a whole host of uh, responses that one might have when they're posed that question. One response might sound like this Well, I have put in my time. Looking to a time, you know, several years ago, that's when I was active. That's when I really committed to the church. Now I just kind of sit on the sidelines. I'm more of an attender than a contributor. Another response might be in a similar state, but for a different reason. It might sound like this. Well, sometime in the past, I went all out. I was doing what God called me to do in the church. I was pouring myself into the lives of God's people, but I got burned really bad. I was mistreated. Uh, Something happened in my church past that hurt me really bad. And uh, that kind of keeps me on the fringes right now. Another response might sound like this. I I wouldn't mind serving. I consider myself willing to use my gift if I could just figure out what it was. You know, maybe I need to take one of those spiritual gift tests or something because I look at those passages in the New Testament and I'm not in there anywhere. Another response might sound like this. Well, I've tried to be more involved. I desire to be more involved, but the ministry won't let me serve in the way I desire. No one seems to recognize my giftedness except me. I have a love for a particular title or an area of ministry, and if the church won't let me serve in that particular way, well, I kind of act like the kid on the playground when he owns the soccer ball, but neither team chooses him to play, so he picks up his ball and just goes home. Others might hear that question, what kind of member am I? And they're confused because they've always been taught Well, the church exists to serve me, not the other way around. And while that attitude is certainly not justifiable, it is understandable. Because we have been largely conditioned in our day to have a relationship with the church that resembles more of a spectator than a servant, more of an evaluator instead of a participant. If there's one thing the church has done a really great job of in recent decades, it would be filling itself up with critics, evaluators, rather than worshipers. 
And therefore, some might be under the assumption that the church is the one who has all the obligation to me. It doesn't go the other direction. Others hear that question, what kind of member am I? And they get really excited. It's thanks for asking because I do have an answer to this. And, and they answer it this way. What kind of member am I? I'm an extremely important member. In fact, the church would be better off having a few more people like me around. Things could really get done. It's sure good that I'm here making up for all of the lack of talent and giftedness in everyone else. But then you have the other end of the spectrum. What kind of member am I? And you have the person saying, I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I'm useless. I have nothing to contribute. I have no gift. Now, what do all these attitudes have in common? Well, first, they represent a serious flaw in one's ecclesiology, one's theology of the church. See, all of us are ecclesiologists, even if you never heard that term or don't even know what it means. Here's what I mean by that. All of us have an idea of what the church is supposed to be, what it's supposed to look like, who's it for, and what is my relationship to it. All of us have an idea about that. And the attitudes we just covered would represent a serious flaw in one's ecclesiology. The second thing all of those attitudes have in common is none of them should continue existing in light of the passage that we're going to look at this morning. So draw your attention uh, now to 1 Corinthians 12, and we're going to see the Apostle Paul instruct the church with regard to these ungodly attitudes about one's relationship with the church. We're going to eventually be in verses 15 to 26, actually 14 to 26, but we can't jump right into verse 14 because you'll notice it begins with a four. So we're diving, we're parachuting right into the middle of the Apostle Paul's train of thought. We've got to back up and see how we got here. Where does this unit of thought actually begin? All the way back in verse four. First Corinthians 12, verse four, notice. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Now, that word for gifts in verse 4, that's the main word in the New Testament for spiritual gifts. Charisma, grace gifts. We're going to define spiritual gifts in a moment, but notice the pattern. There's a phrase, a couple of words that are repeated in each verse here, 4, 5, and 6. Notice verse 4, a variety but the same. Verse 5, a variety but the same. Verse 6, a variety but the same. Paul is laying a foundation that is critical for us to understand with, with regard to how we view ourselves in the church. What's the foundation? What's the principle? Distinguishable but not inseparable. Just like the Trinity, which Paul alludes to here, notice how all the members of the Trinity are mentioned. The Spirit in verse 4, the Lord in verse 5, and God, that's the Father in verse 6. The Trinity serves as a perfect illustration of something where there is unity, there's oneness on, on one hand, and then diversity on the other hand. And that's the perspective he wants the Corinthians to have about the church and their contribution, their spiritual gifts. It's not about uniformity, where everybody looks the same and there are no distinctions. It's not about superiority. It's not about inferiority. It's unity in a context of 
diversity. Notice verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each one, each and every believer, universally given without exception. That's why we refer to it there as a spiritual gift, a manifestation of the Spirit. It's determined by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and given to those who are of the Spirit, all believers. Just by way of reference, keep your finger here. Glance over at 1 Peter 4. We read it a few minutes ago. 1 Peter 4.10. 1 Peter 4.10, as each one, notice that again, no exceptions, each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What we also see in this is the, the command, we're obligated to do this, but we also have the focus, the context. Notice, serving one another. That's the body of Christ. Same thing back in our passage, chapter 12, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians. Each one has been given the manifestation of the Spirit. Notice, to what end? For the common good, for the advantage, the spiritual benefit of all. That means that the service and labors of every individual Christian should be first and foremost in the context of their local church. Granted, it's not that one's service and gifting is confined to the local church, but it should have a concentrated focus in that arena. And verse 7 is also instructive in helping us work toward a definition of spiritual gifts. Just using the language right there, a manifestation of the Spirit of God for the common good of the church. In other words, spiritual gifts are divine enablements for ministry in the local church, as one author put it. When a person is granted new life in Christ, we receive many spiritual blessings, but one of which is a unique ability, a grace gift to minister to fellow believers. Now, Paul says, you want some examples of what that looks like, Corinthians, in your context? I'll give it to you, verses 8 through 11. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Now, just to... Quick side note on this particular list. You'll notice that these are not only spiritual gifts. This is a subcategory within spiritual gifts. These would be examples of what we refer to as the miraculous gifts, the revelatory sign gifts. These gifts were certainly in operation at that time as God was giving revelation long before the canon of Scripture was completed. You know from our statement of faith where we stand on, on these particular gifts, we believe that they faded away, they ceased operation at the, close of, at the close of the apostolic age, and therefore they're not to be expected to be used today. But evangelicalism has made it really easy for us because as we observe what goes on in evangelicalism in the name of these gifts, we quickly recognize whatever's going on today is not what happened in the New Testament. So our experience and observation would would only serve to confirm what we believe the scriptures teach with this. Putting that aside, these specific gifts mentioned here, verses 8 through 11, it's exactly what we would expect to see right here 
in this letter to this church. Why is that? Well, first, the earlier a letter was written in the New Testament, the more you see the reference to these gifts. The earlier on it was. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians here, mid-50s, near, near the earliest parts of the New Testament. And therefore, the church was in need of revelation. God speaking to prophets, speaking through various languages to the people in the church. Because imagine what we would do here this morning if we had no New Testament. We would need to hear from God. And that's why these gifts were operational. Secondly, why do they show up here? This was the category of gifts that the Corinthians were obsessed with. The supernatural, miraculous gifts. Why were they obsessed with them? Because to them, if they had these gifts, that put them in a class of spiritual elitism. We have more of the Spirit. We are up here on this stratification of spiritual people if we have these gifts. So he's getting ready to set the tone by talking about these gifts, and he addresses that mindset in chapters 13 and 14, another sermon for another time. The point for now is that the gifts detailed in these verses, they're a practical illustration, variety, diversity, in a context of unity. No one person in the church has it all. Gifts come in a variety. And notice, it's the Spirit of God who determines that. Verse 11, but to one or I'm sorry, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So all the distinctions among us, all the differences in gifting, that shouldn't be used to elevate, to have attitudes of superiority, inferiority. Those are the, that's the evidence of the Spirit's wise, sovereign plan in gifting all of us the exact way that he has. And now Paul's going to turn to the metaphor of the human body or the human body as a metaphor for the church. Notice verse 12. For even as the body is one, the human body, and yet has many members, many body parts, and all the members of the body, even though they are many, are one body. This is a fitting metaphor for the church. Notice what he says in verse 12. So also is Christ. Now, in context, that's shorthand for body of Christ. Perhaps Paul states it this way to demonstrate you can't separate Christ from his body, the church. You remember when the Lord appeared to Saul on the Damascus Road in Acts 9, verse 5, he did not say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He said, why are you persecuting me? Because it's a connection. You cannot separate Christ from his body. What's the proof of that? What's the proof that we, we are all in union with one another, in a spiritual union with one another and with Christ? Verse 13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. There it is. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Spiritual baptism, spiritual immersion into the body of Christ upon conversion. That's true of every believer. Keep your finger here and look briefly over at Romans 12, 4 to 5. We, we see the same, same idea here. This is just a helpful cross-reference. Romans 12, verse 4. <clears throat> For just as we have many members in one body, 
and all the members do not have the same function, he's talking about the human body there, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We are one with Christ and one with another. Back to our passage, Paul details how this spiritual union transcends any earthly human distinctions, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, so ethnic distinctions, socioeconomic distinctions. There's no superiority, no inferiority before God based on these things. And furthermore, no single believer has any more of a claim on the Spirit than any other believer. End of verse 13. And we were all made to drink of one Spirit. No elite Christians, no Christians who can say, I have more of the Spirit than you do. That's like saying, I have more of Christ than you do. Remember, the Spirit's a person. It's a person. There are no partially saved believers, no partially indwelt believers. So verse 13 now, Paul's saying, that's how you become the body of Christ. That's how you enter the body of Christ. Verses 14 and 26, here's how you be the body of Christ. Here's how you be. Here's the attitude you should have in the body of Christ based on the theology of verse 13. So notice verse 14 as it sets up our passage for us. Paul again turns to the human body as a metaphor. For the body is not one member, but many. And now he's going to talk about how this attitude should be reflected in church life. That's all introduction. Now we're ready. Ready to get going here. Verses 15 to 26. He's going to apply that theology to a couple of attitudes that will result in a dysfunctional body life. That's going to be our outline for this morning. Two attitudes that result in a dysfunctional body life in the church. The first one comes to us in verses 15 to 20, an attitude of inferiority. An attitude of inferiority. This is a member who has an attitude about their place in the church, which, which sounds like this. I'm useless. I have no purpose. I have no gift. I don't really fit in with the church. It doesn't need me. Beginning in verse 15. <clears throat> if the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. Human, here, uh, members of the human body are personified. And they are speaking, and the implication of their words is, is that in comparison to other body parts, I'm not necessary. I don't have a place. And they've gone wrong in their assessment in a few ways. First, they've wrongly concluded that some parts of the body are necessary and others aren't. That's the first error. Secondly, they've concluded because I'm not one of those necessary parts, then I'm, then I'm useless. I don't have a part. I'm not part of the body. Notice, this isn't even envying another body part. This isn't envying who someone else is or what gifts they have. The foot doesn't say, I want to be a hand. Nor does the ear say, I want to be an eye. No, they just assume in comparison to those parts, I'm nothing and therefore I'm not part of the body. 
And I love how Paul corrects this attitude, especially in the culture that we live in. Because what is our culture really, really good at? What are they promoting in the culture right now? It's the idea of what I say determines reality. What I feel determines reality. Notice what Paul says. It's not for this reason any less the part of the body. (laughs) No matter what the foot or ear might think or say or feel, it's a part of the body. Now, if we just compare this with the human body, it really highlights the absurdity of this idea here. Your literal foot cannot decide whether or not it wants to be a part of your body. It just is. Even if it somehow had a mind of its own, no matter what it felt or thought or said, it's connected. It's part of your body. Even if it doesn't work, it's part of your body. And it's pretty clear to understand how that translates into church life. If I don't possess a certain gift, if I can't identify my unique contribution here, I'm not part of the body. Well, it doesn't make you any less a part of the body. You didn't put yourself in the body. Spiritual baptism puts you in. Conversion puts you in the body of Christ. From that moment on, it is just assumed, it's undeniably implied, you're going to be a foot. You're going to be a hand, an ear, an eye in a local body. In fact, your active role in a local church is the proof you've experienced, verse 13. That's the proof you're in the universal church. That's such an important distinction to make because think about today, all all the talk about what it means to be spiritual, manifestations of the Spirit, evidences of the Spirit of God in your life. How often does this come up in that discussion? How often does someone answer, you want a manifestation of the Spirit of God? Look at that person's active involvement in the local church as they use their gift to build up others in that body. That's a manifestation of the Spirit of God. How often does that come up? Notice verse 17 as Paul demonstrates where this attitude would lead if it were true. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? If the, quote, body consisted of one body part, it's no longer a body. It's just a monstrosity. It's a giant eye that can see everything but can't do anything else, or a giant ear that can hear but can't do anything else. So Paul's helping those with this attitude here of inferiority understand that I've separated myself from the body. I'm viewing myself as not part of the body because you have really bad ecclesiology. It's a failure to to understand, here's what happened when God saved me. I got Christ, I got righteousness, I got forgiveness, I got eternal life, but I also got baptized into the body of Christ. Now, this is very easy to illustrate just from our common experience as human beings living in the bodies that we have in this fallen world. All you have to do is live long enough and what inevitably happens with your physical body? Something stops working. Something stops working altogether or just not as good as it once did. And what do we do in those moments? We make adjustments. <laughs> we adapt. But what, what does the rest of our body have to do? Compensate? Make up for that limitation because we're no longer operating at the optimal level that we once were. Now the rest of the body's feeling the weight of that absence, that, that limitation. That's what happens in the church when this first attitude goes unchecked. Certain members become weak links in the body. 
They, they think, I'm just not a part of the body, but no. Paul says, you're a weak link. It doesn't make you any less a part of the body. Look at Ephesians 4.15. Just Again, another quick cross-reference that's so helpful with this. Ephesians 4.15. Paul using the same metaphor of the body. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. According to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. See the emphasis there? The absolute necessity of any and every part of the body that affects the growth of the entire body. If one part decides I'm not that part, therefore I'm no part, it hinders the whole body like an eye that goes blind, like an earbud that goes deaf, a foot that goes limp. It's still part of the body. It's just limiting the rest of it. Back to our passage. This is the the first attitude here that, that needs to recognize each individual part, each individual member has a unique contribution, even if they can't figure out what it is, even if they can't assess it. Now, speaking of that, Just a brief note on that unique contribution. That's what I'm calling your spiritual gift, your unique gifting. You'll notice that the emphasis today in the church when you hear spiritual gifts, it's on discovering your spiritual gift. I have to discover what my spiritual gift is. But interestingly, the New Testament doesn't command you to do that. There's no passage that says, discover your spiritual gift. Rather, you're just expected to be serving and over time, you're going to find out what your gift is. How do, you, how do you do that? Just practice the one another commands. There are hundreds. Just fulfill what the Lord has called you to, all the one another's that you see in the New Testament. And what, what's going to happen as you do that, as you pour yourself out in fulfilling those one another's? Uh, two things are going to happen. First, a certain category of those one another's you're going to really like and find fulfillment in doing. You're going to desire to do it. You're going to be good at it. Secondly, the church is going to recognize you're good at it too. And then you just identified your unique contribution. But that won't happen if you're sitting in paralyzed inactivity because I got to find my gift. The only way to find it is to start serving, practicing all, all the one another's. Notice verse 18 here. But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. God has placed each one of us in this body just as he desired. All of our strengths, all of our weaknesses, all of our differing personalities, all of our unique gifting. He's put us in here and just said, make it work. Make it work with one another. Just as he desired. Not arbitrarily. God doesn't do anything arbitrarily. There's always intention, always sovereign wisdom behind what the Lord does. So notice that it's not only plurality that is God's design, variety, but particulars about each individual part there. Divine intentionality just as he desired. Verse 19, if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, one body. This is the first attitude that results in a dysfunctional body life, an attitude of inferiority, an attitude of uselessness. 
Before we move on to the second attitude, I want to consider why we might be vulnerable to hanging on to that bad ecclesiology. Why is it that we might prefer, that we might be inclined to view ourselves as, eh, I'm not really part of the body because I'm not that part. I don't have that gift. Why is that attractive to our flesh? Well, first, one option could be self-pity. Self-pity is self-absorbed discontentment. And self-pity feels good in the moment, doesn't it? That's why we do it. It feels good or we wouldn't be prone to acting like that. But some just like to view themselves as victims. We like to view ourselves as overlooked, not nearly as blessed as others, because if we can say, well, Lord, you haven't given me what you've given everyone else. I don't have the resources. I don't have the blessings everyone else has. It's a subtle way that our flesh then justifies disobedience and neglect. Self-preservation would be another possibility. If I get around people and I start to practice the one another's as God calls me to in the New Testament, people are going to get to know me, and that's not a comforting thought. So we tend to isolate ourselves and seek our own desire. Self-preservation could also be this mindset. Well, I tried this in the past. I used to pour myself out for God's people, and I was taken advantage of. I was burned. I was mistreated, and now I just kind of keep the church at arm's length. Well, that's simply another way that we attempt to justify neglect, justify disobedience. You know who would have had a great excuse to forsake the church? To not keep serving the church? What about Christ? Was he not mistreated? What did his ministry gain him with regard to personal relationships with people? What about Judas? How did Judas treat Christ? Did Christ give up? Because uh, if I'm going to be treated like this, if you're going to burn me, I'm not going to serve people like that where I have the potential to be hurt. Th that is antithetical with what it means to be a Christian. Christ continued to do good, enduring mistreatment, leaving us an example to follow. That's what Peter says. Listen to 1 Peter 2, verse 20. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. When we're mistreated, taken advantage of, burned, whatever we want to call it, it is Christ-like to persevere in patient, steadfast commitment to the Lord, enduring that mistreatment pouring oneself out for the good of others. You are Christ-like when you do that. Self-righteousness could be another heart issue behind this bad ecclesiology. Maybe we view other people as they're just unworthy of my time, energy, and resources, or maybe they bug me or have sinned against me in some way, and I've got such a high view of myself, I can't humble myself to serve people who I view are below me. Self-righteousness. It could just simply be they're different than me. And I'm hanging on to some human distinction that's actually eradicated in, in the cross. So it could be self-pity, self-preservation, self-righteousness. It could just be self-love. I love my time. I love my comfort. And I just kind of give the church, I give God's people whatever is left over after all of that. One final possibility, self-will. I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and service in the church never comes in that 
package. It takes humility, teachability, and a submissive, godly heart to work alongside and with others. So those could be a few heart issues that are underneath that bad ecclesiology of this first attitude. Back to our passage, that brings us to the second attitude that results in a dysfunctional body life. So this attitude goes all the way to the other end of the spectrum, an attitude of superiority. I am indispensable. I'm irreplaceable. I'm much more necessary than others in the church. In fact, I'm self-sufficient. I don't need anybody. I don't need the rest of the body. All right, so the first person was on the sidelines, not really involved. This person's very much involved, and it's gone to their head. Verses 21 to 26. Notice verse 21. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Overestimating one's role, one's value in the body. I've got so much more to offer and contribute. My gifts are in this superior class than the rest of you. It's an attitude that says the church would be better off if more people just like me would come and be a part of it. This is an attitude that might even prefer talent and skill over character and godliness. So if I've got more talent and skill than that person, even though I'm proud, I should still be in this, in this role. That's this, this attitude. Notice the language again in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Is that not remarkably incompatible with how many people view the church today? The eye can't say I have no need of you. Yet how many, how many professing believers live like that? Paul says there's no Christian who can truthfully say, I have no need for the gifts of others. I have no need to be in close, committed fellowship with others, benefiting from their giftedness. Some try to live like that. Maybe they even have no relationship with the church. They try to be a Christian apart, completely apart, not even attending a church. Others, it's more subtle than that. It might look like this. I'll tolerate the church. I'll be around, I'll attend, I might even give some money, but I don't need the church. I don't need the people of God. So this is not only a mindset of superiority, it could also be a mindset of self-sufficiency. Notice that language, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. I'll give you my free interpretation this morning of that. The eye cannot live in self-willed independence from other members. The eye can't say to the hand, I'll tolerate you, I'll be around you, but I don't need you. No, that's foreign to the New Testament. Verse 22, on the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, seem to be weaker. The ones that to our, our senses and our human assessment they don't appear as crucial. They don't appear as necessary. Paul says, oh, they're indispensable. Indispensable to the proper working of the body. This is a consistent theme we see all throughout Scripture. Human assessment is rarely reality. Rarely God's assessment. As one author put it, visibility does not determine value. Visibility does not determine value. And the human body illustrates this quite well. 
you can lose a lot of things, a lot of visible things on your body. People live without a functioning hand or foot or ear or eye. People live without a voice, the ability to speak. You know what they don't live with? Without a liver, heart, things that are invisible. The things that we don't think about, they play a vital role. The things that we typically only notice if they break down, if they don't do their job. Isn't that true of so many people in the church? There they are fulfilling a critical role and yet get no recognition, no praise. They're they're invisible in that sense. And yet this is how the Lord equalizes ministry in the church. There are prominent roles and there are less visible roles. So how does the Lord equalize ministry? Paul goes on to tell us here. Notice verse 23. Excuse me. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. Now, he's talking human body here first, which is then applied to the church. But he lists three class of human body members here, less honorable, less presentable, more presentable. He doesn't get specific, but... Less presentable could be those parts of our bodies that aren't particularly attractive, not the parts that we feature. We don't make a point of drawing attention to, so I would think of something like an elbow or a knee. Those aren't features, featured points on our bodies. Upon visual examination, we don't really recognize their importance. They don't look like much, but oh, do we notice them when they get hurt, when they get injured. What about the less presentable parts? That's probably referring to private areas on the human body that we cover up because then they become presentable. They're hidden, but they are immensely valuable. Think about everything we can do with our hands, our feet, our voices, everything we can do with our visible body parts. But you know what we can't do is what our less presentable members can do. Create life. Create life. You get rid of our less presentable members, the human race ends. That's how valuable they are. On the other hand, the parts that are presentable don't need any attention or clothing. I think these are the public visual parts, the parts that we think of when we imagine a person, shoulders up. That's kind of how we know each other, shoulders up. Your face is your feature. That's your visible part. The point is pretty clear. All of them are indispensable. All of them. Yes, there's differences. Some seem more significant. Some seem less significant. Some are up front. Some are behind the scenes. But this is referring to the absolute necessity of every part of the body. Notice the middle of verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. In what manner has God composed the body? In what manner has he put together people like us into one body so that the ministry is equalized? He tells us, by giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. How does he give more abundant honor? He makes the members the more invisible, the less presentable, the ones that are behind the scenes doing those critical roles, he makes them absolutely necessary 
for the proper functioning of the body. The parts that appear to be weak, they appear to be indispensable, they have the greater honor of having vitally important roles, like the heart, the liver, and the human body. See, Paul's speaking to this attitude which bifurcates the body of Christ, which views teachers, leaders in the body. They're the really important ones. They're the ones who, who, who really are driving the body. He, he, he's, he's attacking that mindset, and he's saying those prominent roles would be nothing without the people behind the scenes. God has equalized ministry in the church, not by making it all uniform, but by making it universally indispensable, every person. And notice the dual purpose, verse 25, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. No division. What's that mean in this context? It means when you, your, your attitude toward fellow members and your actions do not reflect a stratification that you've made where some are more valuable, some are, some are greater than others. There's no stratification. It's, it is a holy, intense concern for every member. No partiality, no favoritism, no human distinctions. When's the last time that you intentionally ministered to someone who would be in that less prominent, that less significant category? When's the last time you thanked someone for their ministry in the local church? But let me add this. And that someone was not in a prominent public role like this one. Verse 26, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Look at that profound solidarity that we have with one another a profound connection with one another where we, by virtue of being in one body, we enter into and share in the hardest times of one another's lives and the happiest times. Co-suffering, co-rejoicing. And notice in this passage, these aren't even commands. That's sometimes how we treat this passage as if Paul's saying something like he says in Romans twelve fifteen. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That is an obligation that we have toward one another. These aren't commands in this passage, though. These are indicatives. That's expressing what's factual. Here's what's true. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one is honored, all rejoice. That's what's true. So the question for us, then, that's the true spiritual reality. Is that spiritual reality reflected in the life of the church? As individuals, we have to ask ourselves, am I part of the body to such a degree that I experience verse 26? I experience this kind of profound solidarity between fellow members of the body. It won't be true if one has distanced themselves from the local church, if one's on the fringes, on the sidelines, or if they view themselves as superior or inferior. Verse 26 won't be the experience. Because those attitudes deny in practice what is true in principle. We are one body with many members. Let's return now to the question that we began with. What kind of member am I? What kind of member am I? Well, apart from considering these attitudes that we've looked at in this passage, I want to just give you a rapid-fire 
commands in the New Testament a sampling of all the one another's, just a mere sampling, so that we can consider it this way. Taking into consideration for each of us our own individual giftedness, our own unique giftedness, are we faithfully fulfilling these commands in the context of our local church? And keep in mind, these are all given to local churches to be, to be fulfilled in a local church. Every time you hear the word one another in, this, in these references, consider every member without distinction, the prominent, the strong, the seemingly weak, insignificant, every member without distinction. All right, here we go. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, affectionate love. Romans 12.16, be of the same mind toward one another. Strive for unity with all the differences that exist. Strive. Romans 15.14, admonish one another. Romans 16.16, greet one another. Can't do that online. Have to do that in person. Philippians 2 verse 3, regard one another as more important than yourself. Colossians 3.13, bear with one another and forgive each other. What's the implication of that? You're going to be around one another. Close proximity, interacting to such a degree, we're going to start to get on each other's nerves and even sin against one another. Bear with, forgive. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, comfort one another. How are you going to do that if you don't know the person, don't know their burdens, don't know what they're going through? 1 Thess 5.11, encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.13, live at peace with one another. It's easy to do that with people you don't know and that you're not in close uh, fellowship with, but it's hard when we get around one another. Live at peace. Hebrews 10, 24. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as has become the habit of some, but by continually encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day of Christ's return drawing near. Consider. Consider. Intentionally think about how you're going to minister to one another. First <clears throat> Peter 4.9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Last one, 1 Peter 4.10, employ your gifts in serving one another. This is what the Lord of the church expects from the people of the church. That's how we evaluate what kind of member am I. Let's pray. Lord, give us hearts that would believe these things. Give us wills that would yield to these things. And give us minds that would marvel often at your wisdom on display in the church to see the beauty of your wisdom, recognizing all parts of the body as, as indispensable and in, the, in your sovereign goodness and wisdom, bringing us all together, putting us all together in one body for the building up of the body as each part works the way it should. Guard us from the unbelief of either an inferior or superior attitude toward others and their giftedness. And as Paul wrote, help us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And may our attitudes and actions reflect the very spiritual reality that we've looked at this morning, that we are one body with many absolutely necessary members. In the name of Christ we ask, amen.